Open your Bible to Joshua chapter 8. We are continuing our study of the book of Joshua. This morning we're going to look at verse 8, or not verse, chapter 8. So we'll be looking at most of chapter 8, and if you have a copy of the bulletin that you got when you came in, you can turn that over if you like to have some notes to look at. As we go through, there's some notes on the back of, of the bulletin. I want you to know here in just a moment, after we read these verses, most of chapter 8, and, and talk through them, uh, we're going to have a time of prayer. During that time, I want to pray for those of you who are veterans, uh, in our military, those of you who are family members, some of you here this morning, you are serving country as children or spouses or parents of those who are deployed. And so we come this morning realizing we come as people from all nations, from all ethnicities, under the name of Jesus, but at the same time recognizing the freedom we have to be able to gather here and worship, recognizing for our country it being Veterans Day weekend, and so we want to give proper honor there. And so we're going to have a time of prayer after we read the verses, and we want to be able to pray for those, pray for those families. Uh, to let you know, at the end of the sermon, if you are a guest of ours, haven't been here many times before, the way that we'll do this is when the sermon is finished, there will be a final song that we will sing together. We'll stand up and we will declare it. It's a song that will tie together these songs that have led up to the sermon, the time of the Bible study. We'll sing that. We'll declare that before the Lord. It's also an opportunity if you want to respond in prayer, you'll have a chance to do that. We take up our offering as a response to God. So during that final song, we'll pass the plates around if you are a guest or you're even a regular attender here at Emmaus, that is a time that you can put that guest card in the offering plate when it comes around. If you need someone to pray for you, if you came in here this morning and you are broken, you're hurting, you're unsure about your faith, maybe your act of faith this morning, your act of obedience, is to take that card out of the seat back, fill it out, let us know how we can pray for you, let us know what's going on, and put that in the offering plate at the end of the service, and we will reach out to you. We're going to have that response time. Uh, if you were here with us last week, this week may feel a little bit like whiplash. Last week, we had a time of reflection and confession and repentance, a, a powerful, emotional time together. This week, we're coming, and we're having to engage our minds with a really difficult issue. And what I think it is, is a reminder of how Christianity deals with both our heart and our mind. Uh, some people are more drawn to the emotional side of things. Some are more drawn to the intellectual side of things. But we come submitting both of those to the Lord. So even though our response this week won't be introspective or confession or repentance, there are still things you will have to confess. And there will still be ways that the Lord leads you to repentance. And you will still be giving your whole heart and your whole mind to him. And so I want us to be able to do that together this morning in Joshua chapter 8. Let's start in verse 1. I'm going to kind of talk us through these verses as we read them. Joshua 8 verse 1. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Immediately, off in your mind goes Joshua 1, verses 8 through 9, that our kids have been memorizing, our adults have been memorizing. You can't read Joshua 8, 1 without immediately going back and paying attention to Joshua 1, 8, 
through 9, where God calls them to be courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed, because I'm going to be with you. So he, he tells Joshua here, do not fear. Do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you, and arise, go to Ai. That phrase there, when he says, take all the fighting men with you, what that is meant to do, it's meant to contrast with chapter 7 that just came beforehand. Because the people in chapter 7, they sent out some spies and said, oh, is not a very big deal. Just send up a few people. They'll be able to take the city. Eh, doesn't work well. They get defeated. So take all the fighting men with you is meant to be an intentional contrast to chapter 7. See, I have given into your hand, that's Jericho language from chapter 6. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, and his land. You shall do to Ai and to its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. That phrase where it says, only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder, that's a little bit different than Jericho. With Jericho, God says, when you take the city, don't take anything. Well, we saw where Achan messed up in that regard. Not just messed up, he sinned against the Lord by taking some things for himself. And so once the Lord is able to deal with the people regarding Achan, the next place they go, he says, you can take some of the things. Some of these things you'll need to be able to survive in the land. And so we're already seeing how God's not going to deal exactly in the same way with every city that they take. End of verse 2 says, lay an ambush against the city behind it. Let me show you a map. We haven't done maps in a while, but they're always fun to do, especially for, uh, for Joshua. I didn't bring my fancy little laser pointer, but I can only point at one screen at a time, so it, it doesn't really help. Um, there on the west side is the Mediterranean Sea. You've got the Jordan River coming down into the Dead Sea, or sometimes called the Salt Sea. As the people come across the Jordan River and they pass on dry ground, they come to Jericho, which uh, if you're able to see is in red lettering, and then there's a blue arrow that points toward the city of Ai that they were coming toward. And what happens, we're not going to read all these verses in chapter 8, but what happens is a group of the people head out west of the city toward Bethel, uh, which is one of the places mentioned on there, and then Joshua stations another group behind the city of Ai. And so he, along with a group of people, begin to run away from the city. And the people and the king and the soldiers come out of the city and start to chase him. And as they chase him away from the city, he has another set of troops that come in and they form a barrier. So now the people of Ai are caught in between two groups of the Israelites. It's really, from a military standpoint, a brilliant strategy because he's drawn the people out of the city and now they're able to destroy the city plus they're able to capture all the people that were in the city. And so it's complete destruction. The Israelites are able to be victorious. Skip down to verse 24. After, you can go back and read that, just kind of see the way the story plays out, but skip down to verse 24. When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them. And all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword. All Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. 
But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as their plunder, according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day. Verse 29 is a little graphic, so we'll skip to verse 30, just as a thank you to the parents. But uh, um, skip to verse 30. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, not Ebal. Just as, Joseph, uh, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has welded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. Once again, you see how little of the story is meant to be military and how much of the story is meant to be worship. And that's a theme that we've seen all throughout the book of Joshua. Is it violent? Yes. Is there a lot of military involved? Yes. Is it primarily about worship? Yes. Verse 32, there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. In all Israel, sojourner as well as native born, with their elders and officers and their judges stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priest who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Half of them in front of Gerizim and half of them in front of Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Verse 34, And afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Let's pray together. Father, it's, it's not lost on us this morning the fact that we are reading a story that has so much military language, so many military themes, and, and here we are on Veterans Day weekend in our country. And so, Father, we pray, thanking you for those who have served, thanking you for those who are serving, for the families who are involved, for the freedoms that we have as a nation, we come very carefully this morning, not worshiping a nation, not worshiping a particular way of doing politics. We come worshiping you in the name of Jesus, but equally so understanding you are the giver of every good and perfect gift. And one of those great gifts is a nation like this where we can live in freedom and be able to gather and worship, not for our own comfort, but so that the word of God can be spread, so that we would be active and doing missions, so we'd be active in reaching out to all people in all places. God, this morning, let us take on a very difficult topic, but let us do it in such a way that we worship you, we trust you, and we live fully for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen to uh, a couple of quotes as we start out this morning. This is from a man who was a prominent engineer, uh, very educated, grew up as a Christian, attended a conservative evangelical seminary, but along the way stopped believing in God. And he said, talking about this Sunday school class that he had continued to attend even when he was an atheist, he continued to attend church out of social pressure, 
And he said, since I had a pretty decent theological education from a conservative seminary, it was easy for me to participate in a discussion-oriented class like this. To be honest, I probably could have taught the Sunday school class in my sleep, even though I was an atheist. But something clicked in me when we got to Canaan, to the book of Joshua. All of a sudden, the appalling injustice of the holy storyline came crashing down on me. I became physically ill listening to our teacher rationalize why it was okay for the Hebrews to rob the Canaanites of their land through violent conquest. Then listen to this quote from a mom talking to a reporter. She said, All my life I've tried to believe God was as beautiful as Jesus reveals him to be, but I never could fully give my heart to him. I love the God who gave everything for us while we were yet sinners. But I can't love the God who ever demanded that people mercilessly massacre untold numbers of innocent babies. And then listen to these quotes from Rachel, who grew up in church, became a Christian as a teenager, and then went off to college and had her faith challenged. Here's what her friends told her in college. They said, how can you believe in a God who commanded the genocidal slaughter of the Canaanites in the Old Testament? Don't you realize what a dangerous and violent force religion is in the world? Haven't there been enough holy wars fought by people who think their religion is right and everyone else is wrong? What's the big deal this morning? What's the issue that we're trying to address? Well, here's the big deal. In the Bible, especially specifically in the book of Joshua, you have the divine command to Joshua and to the Israelites to kill the Canaanites. And we live today in a world and country that is full of violence, including religious violence. We live in a social culture that leaves no room for serious dialogue. What I mean by that is we just scream at each other from one side or the other, never coming together to really think through these type issues. It's just yelling at each other. And we live in a church culture that often suppresses questions or doubts. You know, I wonder how many people are like that first gentleman who grew up in church but then stopped believing in God but continued to attend church just out of some sort of sort of social pressure? How many people are like Rachel and they get to college and they hear all these questions and things come at them that they've, they've never thought about, they never felt like they could ask, they always had these questions, they just didn't feel like it was appropriate to ask them in church? Let this be a place that you can ask those questions I hope we've shown that we're going to take on these type of questions, not pretending they don't exist. We could preach through Joshua and never talk about this topic, but be very disingenuous because it's right there in front of us. What do we do with this? How how do we handle this? And we realize that when people ask questions like this about the slaughters that happened in the Old Testament, oftentimes their struggle is emotional as much as it is intellectual. When someone is struggling with suffering in their own life or they're unsure of whether or not they believe in God or not, that may even be your situation this morning. Sometimes it's intellectual. There's some questions you want to have answered. Oftentimes, though, it's more of an emotional thing. How could I believe in a God like X? Or it just doesn't feel right. I just can't imagine that being right. So what we want to be cautious of, and hear me closely on this, what we want to be cautious of is giving simplistic answers. When people ask you questions like this, Don't blow them off. Don't say, well, if you just had more faith, you'd be able to handle this. No, these are people that want to address this. 
They want to ask these questions. They need to ask these questions. And if we create a church culture in which we just kind of push those questions to the side or sweep them under a rug, we're just sending kids off to college. We're sending you back into your workplace saying, well, just have more faith and everything will be okay. And we want to take this seriously. How do we address these type of questions? We're going to do this in two parts, this week and next week. This week is focused primarily on the character of God in relation to the questions we're dealing with. Next week is focused primarily on how we respond as God's people. Things like just war theory. What does it mean when Jesus says to turn the other cheek? Does he really mean that? Can we really let people treat us that way? So this week is primarily God's character. Next week is in relation to holy war, these passages, how do we respond to that? Here's what I want to say to you this morning. I worked hard on this phrase this week, so watch closely in your bulletin. We are going to erase the caricatures in order to embrace God's character. Now, the word caricature is hard to say, so I'm not going to say it very many times this morning, but caricature, kids, if you don't know what that is, it's a word that when someone draws a funny picture of someone else, so maybe you go to Frontier City, or you go to Six Flags, or you go to the fair, and you see an artist off to the side, and you know your ears stick out a little bit, but by the time they get finished with your picture, your ears really stick out. Um, or you already knew your nose was a little bit oversized, but by the time they get finished with your picture, your nose is huge, it's taking up the whole, the whole picture. A caricature is a simplistic or exaggerated demonstration of someone. Uh, it's a misconception, a misunderstanding. It's, it's simplified and exaggerated in such a way that it doesn't actually represent the person. When we come to the issue of holy war, and when we think about this in relation to the book of Joshua, when you think about your friends at school, your friends at work, your neighbors who can't stand the fact that you attend church or that you believe in that type of God, oftentimes what we're dealing with is they have in their mind or in their heart a caricature. They have an image of who they see God to be, even though that is a, a mis misrepresentation. It doesn't really show who God is. So this morning, we're going to erase the caricatures, and we're going to embrace God's character, who he shows himself to be. So let's start with those misrepresentations, those, those caricatures. I really have to stop saying that word. I practiced a lot this week uh, on, on that word. Here's the first. I want to deal with Canaan and Israel first, these, these countries that are involved. The first misrepresentation is that this land of Canaan, so, so this promised land that God had given his people, that the people of Canaan had come to possess, that this was an innocent, idyllic paradise and here come these terrible Israelites in to declare war on this peaceful, innocent, kind people. That's just not true. That just doesn't match up what you find historically or what you find biblically. Genesis chapter 15 is our reference point here. That actually Canaan was a powerful, violent empire. So pull up Genesis 15. When you talk about holy war or genocide in the Old Testament... Genesis 15 is the turning point. It's the passage you go to to try to begin thinking through these type of things. Genesis 15, this is when God's making a covenant with Abraham. The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, 
and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years, talking about their time in Egypt. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out and with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. And then look at the next verses. They shall come back here, meaning come back to the holy land, come back to the promised land. They shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites. The Amorites was one of the Canaanite tribes. If you see Canaan or Canaanite in the Old Testament, the Amorites are one of the groups that come from them. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. These verses deal with the idea that when God is talking uh, about this group of people, he's talking about bringing judgment on them. He's talking about a people of great sin, of great iniquity. And so when we think about what's happening in Joshua, it's not that the Israelites are going in to attack a group of people that are completely innocent. In fact, another thing that's going on is the Canaanites attack the Israelites even while they were while they were uh, journeying through the wilderness. Numbers chapter 21, verse 23 gives you a reference there. But Sihon, who was king of the Amorites, would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. He gathered all his people together and went out against Israel to the wilderness and came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. Lest you think that Canaan is just there in the promised land, minding their own business, not causing any trouble, completely innocent people. That's not the case. They were already attacking the people of Israel, even as the people of Israel were leaving Egypt and going around to enter the promised land. And so we have to be careful in our mind how we view Canaan, how we think about them in this sense. The other misrepresentation is that Israel was powerful and aggressive. In reality, they were actually oppressed and relatively weak. Look at what God says about the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 7, 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. In other words, he didn't choose Israel to go into the promised land because he thought they were great military personnel or great fighters. In fact, they've been slaves. They've been malnutrition nourished that really went well the manna that they ate was not exactly great protein you know they're just barely making it through the wilderness at this point Joshua 17 you shall drive out the Canaanites though they have chariots of iron and though they are strong and then that famous verse from Psalm 20 verse 7 some trust in chariots and some in horses but we trust in the name of the Lord our God you know why you say that because you don't have chariots And your God says, walk around the city seven times, blow a trumpet and shout really loud. That's not good military strategy. And so the Israelites are coming as a weak people. They are coming as an oppressed people, going against an empire, going against a people who are very powerful, who have all this weaponry. And so the idea here is this is not the thunder losing to the Sacramento Kings which is bad enough. This is the thunder losing to the Emmaus men's pickup basketball team, okay? This is not like one-on-one type of warfare. This is, we got together our best guys who wouldn't make much of a basketball team, 
And we went and took on the thunder and came out victorious. This is the type of of relationship you have going on there. And then think about holy war, just that whole idea of holy war. Holy war is pervasive in the Bible, say some people. That's just, it's not true. When you read throughout scripture, that's not the idea that you get that this constantly attacking people. It's not the case. The phrase holy war is only found in Joel 3.9. And even then, you kind of have to make it happen. Joel 3.9 says, Proclaim this among the nations, consecrate for war. So there the word holy and the word war are used side by side. The only place you're going to find that. Um, Stir up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near, let them come up. That's not even a declaration to God's people to go out and make war, but that's the only place you're going to see that, that concept show up in the Old Testament. Here's another point I would want to make. Remember that Israel's attacks were limited in scope, how far they went, and in breadth, how wide they were going. Look at these verses uh, that come up next here, Genesis 15, which we looked at earlier. On the day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Here's the point I would want to make about this, and this is a very important point when we think about war in the Old Testament. The image in the Old Testament is not that Israel is fighting war in order to take over the whole world. The command that God gives them as they go in is there is a particular piece of land that he is sending them to. And are they going to fight some battles? Yes, absolutely. Is their calling to violently, militarily take over the entire world? No, absolutely not. God is sending them into the promised land so they will become a light to the nations, not so they will attack the nations. And this is a key distinction when you think about the role that violence plays oftentimes in societies, the way that different religious groups think about the role of war. This was a very specific and purposefully limited strategy. God was placing his people in this particular land he had given them so they would be a light to the nations, not so they would attack the nations. If the story of the Bible was God continuing to send his people out to force someone to believe, or yet I will kill you, that would be a serious problem. And in fact, I would be playing golf this morning, not standing up here before you, if that was the case. That would be a serious problem. But what God calls his people to is it's very specific and it's very limited for a particular purpose. One other thing I would say about that, overall in the Old Testament, not not specifically the book of Joshua, but overall in the Old Testament, drive out language is more common than kill off language. God's calling his people to be courageous, not calling them to be bloodthirsty. Very important distinction there. He is calling them to be courageous, to drive out these nations from this particular area. He's not calling them to be bloodthirsty, to go out and and fight wars everywhere. Genesis chapter three, this is the story of Adam and Eve sinning and God sending them out of the garden. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden. He drove out the man. The same language that God uses in Genesis 3 to send the people out of the Garden of Eden is the same language he uses in the book of Joshua. The Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. 
God is doing this work of driving out the people. He's not calling his people to kill everyone that shows up. And that's an important distinction as well. A couple other things I would say, and we'll move a little more quickly right here. There's sometimes a caricature that they attacked cities that were filled with innocent women and children. I think this is where our stomachs churn a little bit when we read the book of Joshua, or maybe we kind of have that, we hit that emotional barrier. How could God call his people to kill all these innocent women and children? What you're going to find in the book of Joshua is they, as they attack the city of Jericho, remember they have just come west across the Jordan River to come on to the eastern side of this territory, and Jericho is the first city they ran up against. When you see city in your Old Testament, this is more of a military outpost than it is a city filled with civilians. So, being cautious with these illustrations because they're not perfect, but, but this is attacking the Pentagon, not attacking Washington, D.C., or, or maybe to come closer to home and being careful again, this is attacking Tinker, not attacking Midwest City. Uh, it, it's going against the actual military personnel that were involved. It's attacking their outposts, not going against all the civilians who would have lived away from those. They weren't going to take all their women and children and put them in the military outposts. That's not how these areas function. The women and the children would have lived in villages and other areas. Now, may there have been some women and children who were killed in these conquests? Possibly. But if so, it was extremely limited just because of what it means that they were going to attack these cities. And so, once again, I don't mean to be simplistic, but how we read this makes a big difference because we can think of of Joshua and the Israelites going in and wiping out all these women and children, and that's just not the way that it was taking place. Which leads to the next point on your notes. There's this idea that thousands of people were involved and everyone and everything was killed. In reality, in the ancient world, it was common to talk trash about your, uh, your military exploits. So we crushed them. You're like, oh, you must have won by 50 points. No, we pulled away by 15 in the fourth quarter. But uh, we crushed them. We know what is meant by that. It, it's trash talk. It's exaggerated. It's hyperbole. Sometimes we, we panic at this point. We say, yeah, yeah, but that's what it says in the Bible. That's us taking our modern reading of particular numbers or representations and saying, well, they had to do it like this. No, that's, this is just how they, they spoke. Let me give you an example on the next, next page. Archaeologists have found inscriptions from different people. There's a group called Moab, uh, that the Moabites, that the Israelites battled against quite often. The Moab inscription said, says, Israel has utterly perished for always. They're claiming that they have wiped Israel off the map. Was that true? No. Did they defeat them in a particular battle? Yes. And so they celebrated. They bragged about it on Facebook. They wrote it on a stone. And archaeologists found it all these years later. It was, it was exaggeration. Joshua 11. Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. It sounds like it's over. We get to Judges, which is the very next book. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? They're like, wait, there's still Canaanites left to fight? I thought in the book of Joshua they killed them all. No, that's not the idea that's being given. The idea that's being given in the book of Joshua is they continue to advance victoriously against all these people they face. 
And when they get to the book of Judges, there are still people to face. And so don't get this idea that they are wiping a group of people off the face of the earth. Are they being victorious? Yes, but they're driving them out little by little, as Scripture says in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Okay, so hopefully that helps you make sense or, or maybe remove some cobwebs a little bit, gets, erases that caricature a little bit. Now let's talk about God's character as we wrap up this morning. How do we embrace God's character over against these difficult things we see in, in Joshua? The first, remember that God is patient. Patient? He sent his people to kill a whole bunch of people. Yeah, yeah, but, but remember what came earlier in Genesis chapter 15, that he waited 400 years before sending his people in against the Amorites. He was patient with them. You see this in the New Testament in 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, in, in verses, verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Never get the idea that God acted rashly, God did not get a temper or lose his temper against the Canaanites and send his people into attack. He has been patient with them year after year after year. We serve a God who is patient for the purpose of repentance, for the purpose of salvation. Uh, so sidestepping just for a minute and, and maybe being just a bit more blunt than I would normally be in this type of situation, you may be here this morning and God has been overwhelmingly patient with you. You have sat in church services year after year after year, and you have continued to put up a wall toward the things of God, and he has been patient with you. And you say, how can I believe in a God like that? I need more evidence. I need more information. Maybe I'll just wait a little bit longer. God has been patient with you. And my prayer for you this morning is that the goodness of his character even in a story like this this morning the goodness of his character would overwhelm you to the point that you would raise the white flag and say I will trust him I will worship him that you would stop sitting in service after service just waiting for the right time God has been patient with you to bring you to the point of repentance and salvation and that you would give yourself to him which leads to point number two right after that God is patient God is also merciful I tell you, as we have studied, uh, as we've studied alongside each other, the book of Joshua, the last few months, I never realized how important the story of Rahab was in chapter two to make sense of the book of Joshua. So as we've read this book together, that's the one thing that has overwhelmed me, is you cannot read the book of Joshua without understanding how key chapter two is. That God has shown mercy to this Canaanite prostitute who was working in this military city, and he shows mercy to her and her family. God is a God of unbelievable mercy. You see this in places like Zechariah chapter 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. And, and it bleeds right into the next point that you can see there on your notes. God is compassionate to the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner. Deuteronomy 10 he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Why is that so important? I, I would understand if you don't have your Bible still open or your phone still open to Joshua 8, but if you do have your phone or Bible still open to Joshua 8, look at the very last verse 
in Joshua 8. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded. This is, this is verse 35. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. The picture of God's character throughout all of Scripture, this is the God who says, let the little ones come to me. This is the God who says your religion is worth nothing if you're not caring for the orphan and the widow and the foreigner. We don't know how many women and children were involved at Jericho and I, probably very few if any. And we know that God is not xenophobic. He is not out to get all the other people. What he is, is he is seeking to gather all the people in to his family, that he loves the foreigner. He loves those whom he has created, and he is patient and merciful to them so that they would turn to him and find salvation. Number four, and oh, this, is, this is where I think we, we run into problems. God is just. He addresses and eradicates evil to protect his creation. I understand. In fact, I feel it at a deep emotional level if you trip over something like the book of Joshua, the idea of God calling his people to kill the Canaanites, to drive them out. I, I see that. Let's address one question, though. What kind of God is it who allows evil to continue to reign, who allows evil to remain present and doesn't step in to protect and save his people? What kind of God would that be to worship? If there was a God represented in the Bible who was not just, who was weak and never dealt with evil, what kind of trust would that inspire in us? What kind of worship would that drive us to? If the Bible did not portray God as dealing with evil and dealing with those who rebel against him, frankly, I don't think that that is a God that any one of us would look to to find salvation and hope. Uh, in fact, we're just making God in our own image at, at that point. Number five, Remember, God is consistent. He doesn't change in the New Testament. One of the things our culture continues to struggle with, and we sometimes perpetuate this in the church, the God of the Old Testament is not a mean God who all of a sudden turns nice in the New Testament when Jesus shows up. He is God from Genesis to Revelation. And when he reveals himself in Jesus Christ, he doesn't become a different God. His character remains consistent. If you think that Jesus is a weak figure who just loves everybody and never gets upset, I'd go back and read the Gospels uh, again because he comes across as extremely, extremely offended by evil and willing to do whatever it takes to eradicate that evil. So God is consistent throughout Scripture. And then finally, God is Savior. The reason we say in so many songs about victory this morning is so that you would know that yes, God is just, but God is powerful to save. That is a God that we can worship. That is a God that we can trust. And that is a God that we give our entire lives to. I want to point you right now to Psalm chapter 46. We're going to look at this psalm. 
And then I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to stand up, and we're going to sing our final psalm together. Look at Psalm chapter 46. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way. Who do we know God to be? He's our refuge and strength. What does that mean? We don't have to be afraid, even though all these things go on around us. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. In a world of chaos, he is a God of peace. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. It's okay to see a little bit of our contemporary world in Psalm 46.6. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. Do we panic? No, he lifts his voice and the earth melts. He doesn't need military action. He doesn't need political actions. He merely speaks a word and it all melts away. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Then look at verse 8. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. And then verse 10, he says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Psalm 46.10 is holy war language. And it's not saying, gather the troops, here we go. It's saying, be still and know that I am God. That's not a verse primarily for your devotion time, your quiet time. That's okay. That's a verse when you're meeting this morning at First Baptist Church, Sutherland Springs, Texas. That's that verse. That's a verse when you found out this week that you have a terrible sickness. That's a verse when all of the relationships in your life are crumbling around you. That's a verse when you've lost your job and none of the numbers are adding up at home. That's a verse when you're trying to figure out, who do I worship? Who do I trust? Who do I give myself to? Why would you come to a church and give your money and give your time and go to Canada and go to the Middle East? Because of that, he is our refuge and our strength. He is with us. He is just. He is Savior. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted and all of the earth. Let's pray together. Father, as we deal with a passage like this and continue to do so next week, I know that there are people here this morning who maybe have struggled with the idea of how could a God call a group of people to do what happened in the book of Joshua? But Father, I pray that through your word that we would have greater clarity, not just so we would know more, but so we would give our hearts fully to you. The result of this morning is not that we would have information to win a debate with. The result of this morning is that we would worship you, we would trust you, 
and we would live on mission with greater fervor than ever before. So God, during this response time, as we take up offering, as we sing together, as we pray together, as people submit those guest cards, as we do all of these things, God, that we would worship you and we would trust you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.